Tonight, we're going to talk about an expanded view of lifestyle. Who here has heard about lifestyle medicine? Okay, just about everybody. Of course, you're Seventh-day Adventist, right? <laughs> lifestyle medicine. And who here has heard about choices, making right choices and good choices? All right. Now, tonight, uh, this, this presentation has uh, multiple different levels because we have to be able to get through some of the issues dealing with the continuing medical education for those of you who have signed up for continuing medical education and what we have said we would do, we will do, all right? But we also are looking at, at things that other health professionals uh, at that level might, uh, might need to engage with because there are issues that are involved with that. There are also things from personal life issues that we'll be uh, exploring, some Christian life issues, some human life issues, and we'll be looking at some good science uh, that deals with all of this. And we'll be a little bit interactive uh, at the beginning because I want, I want us all to feel comfortable as we go through. So we'll start with a case study. This is the case of Gina. This is actually a real patient. Uh, Gina is a nurse's aide. She works on a night shift in a local nursing home. She loves to eat. She gets home tired and sleeps the whole day when she gets home. Uh, weighs over 400 pounds, multiple failed attempts to lose weight. She's seen by a doctor in San Diego and placed on a strict weight loss regimen. Do you think she will lose weight? Why and why not? I want you to talk to somebody next to you, right? And we have one minute. You come to a conclusion based on this history, whether you think she will lose weight, yes or no, why, why not? Okay, so it's you and I. All right. Okay. Let's see. How many people think that yes, she will she will be successful? She's going to lose weight on the short term. Uh huh. And so so most of you 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 guys are skeptics. You're thinking she won't lose the weight. You're realist. <laughs> okay. So why don't you think she will she'll be able to sustain this? She loves to eat. She loves to eat. Hmm. No tools, all right? Uh-huh. So we have some things that uh, kind of predict that she won't, and some that say yes. What do you say? She's working nights. That's going to be hard, right? Yeah, and you know, when you, you're up at night, uh, we know about the circadian uh, disruption and the increased weight due to hormonal changes in the individual. All right, so let, let's, let's go on and see what happened with her. This is Gina. She's a nurse's aide, night shift, local nursing home, 51 weeks after the first picture. She controls portion sizes. She exercises regularly. She's less tired when she gets home, and now she has a life. She goes out, and she uh, goes to the mall during the day, and uh, she actually has a life. What do you think? Amazing. Praise the Lord. Right? She made a lifestyle choice. She followed what she was being told. And you know, the doctor who, uh, who, who saw her, he thought this, he was being very successful. Things were going along very well. And this is Gina. She's regained 36 pounds in six weeks. And the doctor is saying, what is going on with this lady? But you know, at the same time that this is happening, 
he is realizing that many of the people in the clinic, he had a weight loss clinic at Kaiser Permanente uh, down in San Diego, and he was noticing that people who were losing weight were dropping out of the clinic. And he's thinking, this is backwards. This, this, does, this is not right. People who are not doing well, he would expect them to drop out. But people who are doing well, they drop out of the clinic. As a matter of fact, in her case, in just a short space of time, she was on this trajectory. And she finally regained all of the weight in less time than it took her to, than it took her to lose the weight. Bad situation. So, question, why do some people seem to make all the wrong lifestyle choices? I mean, she was on a roll, she could have kept it up, right? All right. How about this guy? What do you think about him? Choices? Let him down that road? You know, sometimes you might think that these people have nothing to worry about. But sometimes they do. They have a lot to worry about. How, about. how about this? Are we lacking any data that says that cigarette smoking may be good for something? <laughs> have you seen anything? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and they're all smoking. Even this little boy. He's becoming a man, and this is what men do, right? And then there are these. And we think, why would anybody want to do this? Uh, when I was in school, uh, we had, there, there were people who hung around the hospital. They were called hitmen. Anybody who's worked in a large city uh, in the ER would know about hitmen. These guys were specialists at finding little veins for the, for the junkies. They'd find the little veins so they could I give a pop. It was uh, back in those days, this was uh, in the 70s, it was $5 a pop, right? And most of the addicts that I know did not want to be addicts, and they hated needles. But they did this. Do you wonder what's going on with people like that? And then spousal and partner abuse and people who, they live in that situation, and then when you say, you know, you should press charges, anybody's been there to witness this? You say you should press charges, what do they say? No. No. In one situation, this woman says, this shows that my husband loves me. I can't imagine. That's love, right? Okay, we're getting somewhere. How about these people here? Now, I don't know any of these people personally. I got these pictures from the internet. But I know people whom, whose pictures I could put up there. I've had patients over the years. I could put their pictures up. Uh, they didn't give me permission. <laughs> and then, isn't this your patient? His cholesterol is you know, off the charts. Blood sugar is high. He's smoking, and he says he's trying to, to stop smoking. His EKG is abnormal. His blood pressure is up. Uh, he's looking at the scale. But I tell you, he gets Big Mac attacks 
or something. You have patients like that, those of you who are in practice? Yeah? And what do you think about these people? How do you respond to these lifestyle laments? Well, unfortunately, sometimes we do this. And I say unfortunately, not because sometimes it is not that person's fault. But the issue may not be fault, as what we're going to uh, discuss is to not look at fault, but actually look at determinants. Look at the things that actually uh, inform and actuate choices that people will make and actions that they take. In the case of Gina, you see, you know, she, she chose the wrong path, bad lifestyle. She went back to what she shouldn't be doing, and therefore she gained weight. So the question would be, what would we consider lifestyle to be? Simply put, it's the characteristic way that a person lives his or her life. Or the habits that make up a person's daily life and the usual way or ways she or he spends his or her time and deals with situations. That's it's the, the stuff that we, that we do. We all have a lifestyle. Now, if you were to go on the internet and you type in lifestyle, this is not what you will get. What you will get would be things about... Uh, the gay life, and <laughs> that's what you will get. That, that, that has dominated the top of the, uh, of the lifestyle search. But uh, when you look for lifestyle medicine and things like that, then you will find uh, definitions like this. Lifestyle involves habits, beneficial or detrimental. It doesn't matter. It's just it's what it is, how we are, what we do. It involves eating, sleeping, recreation, sitting or standing, outdoor living, physical activity, oral hygiene, body hygiene, emotional hygiene, religion, work life, sexual practices, risky behavior, sex, uh, stress coping, health engagement, chemical use, the way we approach people and problems, social connectedness or isolation, environmental exposures, etc. This, this is the stuff of everyday life. Our attitudes, our motives, our motivation, our spirituality, all of these make up our lifestyle, and there's more. I, I mean, I could continue, and we'd probably go use the, all the time that we have just coming up with things that, that constitute our lifestyle. So it's all of these things put together that makes lifestyle. The question is, do these things actually, uh, are they used for our benefit, or are they used for our detriment? And what are the things that informs the lifestyle that we actually have? So for information, you're, what informs a lifestyle include things that we're taught. You know, you're taught certain things, and then you learn certain things, and then that becomes part of what you do, right? It's what we believe becomes part of our lifestyle. We believe it, and therefore we act as if that is true, and then that's it. Even if what we believe is a lie, right? What is modeled, when we see people who are doing a certain thing, and we, and we say, well, that's how you do it, then we follow it too, and that's what we do. What is available? You know, you can't do something that is not available to be done. So, that can't be part of your lifestyle. But if it's available, you might uh, get involved with it and, and do that. What is normative? Whatever is normal. We all have a sense of what is normal. N normal for us is our lifestyle. Right? Uh, what we are limited by what we're limited by actually tells us that we can't do certain things. Like, you know, I've wanted to fly. You know, this kind of fly. 
But I, I got word when I was a little boy that uh, that is not really a capacity that I have. <laughs> I can't fly. Uh, what you're exposed to, what you're accustomed to, what you're encouraged to do, what you can physically do, what you have a desire for, what you are permitted to do, what you're attracted to, what you can afford to do, what you get support for, what you value, all of these things constitute the things that, that push us in one way or another to choose certain things, and that becomes our lifestyle. Isn't that amazing? A lot of stuff goes into it. So if we were to consider your lifestyle now from a therapeutic standpoint in, in lifestyle medicine, it's your choices within the context of your real and your perceived world. Whatever it is that is real, yes, you can do and you can't do, or you I'm encouraged to do and you have access to, etc. but also your perceived world. What's going on in your mind and therefore how you act in relation to so what you believe, what you value. All of these things inform the lifestyle that you're going to choose, right? Now, many times, we see this chart being used as kind of the chart that shows what happens with lifestyle. And it's looking at behavior, the way we live. It's the biggest driver of premature death. And here it is, 40% what we do, how we live, our behaviors. And therefore, we say, if we can change this, we can really make a dent in what happens to people as they go through their life, and we can avoid or delay premature death. And that makes a lot of sense. But that's this graph. Uh, just to uh, be sure we're all saying the same thing, 40% then behavioral patterns, 30% social circumstances, 10% healthcare, uh, sorry, 30% is genetic composition, 15% social circumstances, and then 5% environmental exposures. This is what uh, that is saying. This was uh, from work presented in 2007 in the New England Journal of Medicine. But there's another chart that oftentimes doesn't get looked at, and that is the one looking at things from a public health standpoint and then applying it back to individuals. What are the determinants of health? You'd see here, genes and biology, even though people talk so much about their genetic makeup, it's only 10% of what determines somebody's health. The physical environment, 10%. Clinical care, only 10%. And so here, we spend all our time as doctors and uh, and practitioners and whatnot, but we're only really impacting if we look at, at what access to and the technology that we have and what we can do, 10%. Okay? Health behaviors, 30%. So that's even more than all of those things. But then social and economic factors, that takes up the big portion, 40%. And so the question that the Institute of Medicine has been looking at over the past several years, is if this is really a big determinant of health, how come we're not paying attention to that? Because when we look at what these social and economic factors are, they actually play a very big part of the health behaviors that people will have. So rather than looking at lifestyle as just being health behaviors, 
lifestyle involves whether we take access or we, we, we appreciate and make good use of the healthcare that's available, whether within the context of our physical environment we choose uh, the paths that are better than the paths that are worse, okay? We can't change our biology, but what we know is that we can actually alter what's going to happen to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation by how we live this life, right? If time should last. And the social and economic factors, this is what we're going to concentrate on for the next few minutes. So this is the model that was uh, presented by Whitehead. This here, age, gender, uh, constitutional factors, the biology of the person, that's at the core. That's, you know, we're a person and that's it. But then we have individual lifestyle factors, and these things play an important part. But they are not the whole sum. When we look outside of that, we see social uh, networks and community networks, and then we see housing and healthcare services and water and sanitation and unemployment and work environment and education, agriculture, and food production. All of these things have an impact, and the impact goes inward towards us. And some of those things we cannot change. But they inform our lifestyle because they may limit the choices that we have or they may open up new choices for us. See? And then general socioeconomic, cultural, and environmental conditions. You know, the fact that uh, you were born or you're living now in God's country, right? And you're not living in New Delhi. You didn't choose that. You're not living in New Delhi. You're living here. So there are things that, that's just how it is. And there are some people who are living, uh, perhaps, I don't know the area well enough to be able to say anything like this, but there are people who are living in cities, and you say, well, well move out into the country. And it's like, what? <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't have the wherewithal to be able to move into the country. They don't know how they can do that. They, they, they don't know how to do that. They, they, they won't even know how to survive if they were in the country. The same way that some of us may not know how to survive if we go to the city, right? They don't know how to survive in the country. Here in Spokane County, there was a study done and published in 2012, and uh, this is available in PDF, and it's very informative, and I have a bunch of slides that I made from, from this. I'll only show you a few of them. What they were looking at were the determinants of health for this county and comparing it with what was going on in the state of Washington altogether. And basically what they found is, if you were to look at the uh, educational domain, household income domain, race and ethnicity domain, and then the place and neighborhood domain, they, would be, they were able to look at a wide cross-section of what's going on in this county as things that determine the health status of individuals and the characterization of the things that impact health. So in this one, uh, I'll go through these quickly. Just look at the top and get a glimpse of, this, of the slide. If later on you want to go back and look at it, we, we can do that. But as an adult's level of education increases, the likelihood of living in poverty significantly decreases. So education is a key thing, right? Getting a good education. 
Next one, as the parents' level of education increases, the likelihood of their children living in poverty significantly decreases. That should make sense. Adults with less education are less likely to have health insurance. Okay? Adults with less education are more likely to have had several adverse childhood experiences. That means that uh, these adults actually have had things in their childhood like neglect and abandonment and emotional and physical abuse and uh, somebody in the family being incarcerated or somebody with mental health issues or a significant person in the family dies. All of these things impact the child's neurodevelopment. Okay? And so adults with less education are more likely to have had these adverse childhood events. So it's insult on injury. Okay? Adults with less education are more likely to have had the activity limited by chronic illnesses. So you, you, you have a, a person with uh, education issue, and lo and behold, physical and mental issues are following uh, with that. Adults with less education are more likely to have had cardiovascular disease. The lower the adult income, the more likely they are to have diabetes. Now you think about this in your practice. Somebody comes in, and uh, are you assessing their educational level? Are you assessing their income level? Are you really doing that? Or are you just asking the perfunctory question? Or the person comes in and you know they have Medicare or they have private insurance or they have uh, Medicaid or something like that, and you say, okay, I assume what is going on from that. But you know that, that some of these, some people, uh, the card that they carry may not really reflect what's going on in their real life, right? Okay. So adults with less education are more likely to have the activity limited by chronic disease. The lower an adult's income, the more likely they are to have activity limited by chronic disease. So education and income both affect chronic disease. The lower the adult's income, the more likely they are to be physically inactive. Less money, less physical activity. Why that correlation? The lower an adult's income, the more likely they are to experience poor mental health. Mental health, by the way, is a major, major issue. One in three to one in four people around the world has a mental health problem. Okay? So in this room, one, two, three. One, two. <laughs> okay. No, but we're not normal. <laughs> we don't have a normal distribution here. All right. The lower an adult's income, the more likely they are to cut or skip meals because there was not enough money to buy food. And, you know, we tell people, have a good breakfast, and it's a choice that you make and whatnot. And some people have to make a decision about eating food today or taking the bus to go to work. The lower an adult's income, the more likely they are to be obese. And you'd wonder, how come? Well, some of that work was done right here uh, in Washington State at the University of Washington, where they looked at, uh, uh, this was a research done back in the 1980s, that people tend to choose what will fill their tummies. That's what they choose. You want the cheapest thing that will fill your tummy. And those things are usually highly processed, Junk food. So in many communities, we have the juxtaposition of poor nutrition or undernutrition and over calories. <laughs> okay? 
it's a strange combination, but if you understand how people are making the choice, you, you would get the, the idea. People don't want to go hungry. I saw a very, uh, I was in Abidjan uh, a few weeks ago, and we have an AIDS project uh, going on in, in Africa, in Southern Africa. And I saw this slide. It, that really, it really affected me. Beautiful uh, young lady. But she made this statement. I'd rather have AIDS than die of hunger. This is what she had to choose. Because she had no income, and the way to get income was through prostitution. Which means she was going to be exposing herself to AIDS. But she wanted to eat. So here is Gina at age 28. Here is Gina at age 29. And we heard her story. And we might say, Gina made bad choices. But when Gina was being interviewed, the doctor made a mistake. And instead of asking her the question that he wanted to ask her, he asked her instead, how much did she weigh when she first was sexually active? And she said something like 38 pounds. And he stopped the whole thing. No, uh, no, she didn't understand, and he said the wrong, the wrong question. So he looked back at his notes, but he said the same question again, <laughs> inadvertently. And she said, 38 pounds. My grandfather. And she burst into tears. When she was eight years old, this is her picture. She was a healthy, uh, normal weight girl. When she was eight years old, her grandfather began a different story in her life. And so we have this. And you say, well, how did that happen from that just because of grandpa? Well, she had guilt. She had body image issues. She had cognitive dissonance. This is a grandfather. He's supposed to be protecting her. He said he was not. And then she found that when she looked like this, she was unattractive and she had no more risk. No more risk. Do you get the picture? So now she goes and she's in the clinic and she's lost weight and she looks like this. And you know what happens? Some guys begin to talk to her and make sexual innuendo. And her mind goes back to this. And therefore she makes a choice. I would prefer this and not have to deal with that problem than this. Now when the doctor discovered that 
he thought, I wonder how many patients have problems like this that I've been missing. So he started to ask all of his obese patients. As a matter of fact, he ran up a string after he told his colleagues, they were all looking for this. 256 consecutive patients all had stories like this. Consecutive patients. Wow. He thought, this is, this is big. So he went to the, uh, no, he's a preventive medicine doc, the chief of preventive medicine down at the uh, Kaiser Permanente Clinic in, Southern, in, in San Diego. He goes and he presents a paper on this to the American Psychiatric Association. And he's laughed out of the room. They don't, they don't believe him. They think he's, he's crazy. <laughs> they think he's crazy. They didn't have a DSM you know, for classification for him at the time, but they knew he was, he, he was, he was off. This, this couldn't be true. But in the audience, there was a doctor from, uh, an epidemiologist from uh, the CDC. Actually, he was, he was from uh, Emory University. And he put him in touch with an epidemiologist from the CDC, and they did the definitive study. It was called the ACE, Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. They studied 17,000 people, 17,000. And what they found shocked the entire world. But it did not make any major newspaper. It didn't make the television. It didn't make the late night shows. It didn't make any of those things. You probably won't even hear it on NPR. But we're going to talk about what that means now. The issue is, once you hear that lady's story, it doesn't matter who you are. You have to have compassion. And this is the hallmark of Jesus' ministry. Jesus, when he saw people suffering, he was moved with compassion. As Seventh-day Adventists, we should be moved with compassion with our patients. We should see them and we should, we should empathize with them. Compared to people with none of these adverse events, adverse experiences, those with four or more such events, that is, being neglected as a child or perceived neglect, being abused as a child, having one of the members of your family be incarcerated or die, or someone with mental health issues, okay, all of these things. If you had four or more, right, these individuals are twice as likely to smoke. So now, is it a choice to smoke or is it not a choice? It is, but there are things that are pushing them in that direction, right? Seven times more likely to be alcoholics. Six times more likely to have had sex before the age of 15. As a matter of fact, in, this, in the ACE study, what they found was that some of these young ladies, within five years, had more than 50 partners. They have holes in them that they're trying to fill but they can't fill it the way they were doing it. 
They're twice as likely to have cancer or heart disease, 12 times more likely to have attempted suicide. Men with six or more ACEs were 46 times more likely to have injected drugs than men with no history of adverse childhood exposures. A person with four or more adverse childhood experiences is 2.2 times as likely to have ischemic heart disease. So we have patients with heart disease and we say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Your cholesterol is normal, you exercise, uh, you have no family history, but yet you have a heart attack, right? Oh, it must be genetics. That's what we say, right? We don't know because we don't ask about what's going on in that person's background. They're 2.4 times more likely to have, had, to have a stroke, 1.9 times more likely to have cancer, 1.6 times as likely to have diabetes, okay? Here are the things that are associated with ACE. In every community that has been studied, lack of physical activity is associated with having these, these, these things. In other words, people who have adverse childhood uh, experiences are less likely to enjoy physical activity. They're more likely to smoke, they're more likely to drink alcohol, they're more likely to use drugs, they're more likely to miss work, they're more likely to have trouble at school, they're more likely to have all of these negative, they're more likely therefore to not have a job and therefore they're more likely to have an educational problem and a job problem and we just found out uh, from the survey, if you don't have a job and you're not educated, what happens to you? All the health issues that follow, right? And we see you in the emergency room, and we see you in the clinic, we see you in the office, we see you in the hospital, right? Severe obesity is part of the, the problem, diabetes, depression, suicide attempts, STDs, heart disease, cancer, stroke, COPD, broken, all of this associated with something that that individual did not have any control over. but it has become part of their lifestyle because it is part of their life story. But it gets deeper. Time Magazine put this out. How the first nine months shaped the rest of your life. You know, uh, I was in my mother's womb, but I can't remember anything about what happened. <laughs> I, wasn't, I was there, but I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. I don't know how my mom was living when uh, she was carrying me. I have no idea. But what mom, even what she thought, and how she was, uh, her attitudes, all of these things were affecting me. It was so interesting. I, I, um, I am, by choice, I'm a diabetologist. And so I, I enjoy reading about diabetes and I enjoy taking care of patients with diabetes. Uh, there's just no way we're gonna stamp it out. But, I remember some years ago when I read a strange study that showed that uh, people who were uh, low birth weight, this was first done in an Asian population, low birth weight, at age 43 to 46 had an increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes. I thought, this is amazing, amazing. Well, guess what? Now we know, now we know. Part of what happens in the uterus and where's Cindy? Yes. <laughs> the soup that the mom had. <laughs> okay, the chemicals in the mom's body bathed the child. And therefore, that child was subjected to what mom was experiencing. Right? And this increases 
the child's risk because it programs the child. Now we know about this, this interesting study that was done looking at, people, at, at women who were pregnant at the time the Twin Towers fell, 9-11. They observed it. And these people were followed. And we now even know the markers, the cellular markers that were affected if they were pregnant and they were in the third trimester. What would happen to their children? If they experienced this trauma, the child ended up with PTSD. Are you hearing me? The mom has, she experiences something and the child has a problem. Right? These babies will be more susceptible to anxiety, depression, and even PTSD than those whose mothers did not experience the PTSD event. We have issues with epigenetics, preconception, sperm and egg, intrauterine life, whether we're delivered by C-section or we're delivered uh, vaginally. All of these things affect what goes on with a child. So when we have two people who are living in the same family, two people, same family, as a matter of fact, you could even say twins, all right? And you say, how come one is doing this and the other one is going a different path? We haven't the foggiest idea what's going on on the inside. What happened on the inside? What happened when they were uh, still being formed? Whether one got enough oxygen and enough food compared to the other. You get the idea? All of these things affect the child. Metabolic programming, food, exercise, sleep, music, attitudes, beliefs, fears, joys, all of these by the mother will affect what happens with that baby. Okay? Uh, this doesn't want to stay on this ear, so. All of this affects the baby. So when we talk about lifestyle, we have to, we, we have to look at what informs the lifestyle, not just the outward manifestation of what the person is actually doing. That's the point. So, here's what's happening. Some people have gotten wise to this. This is a doctor, Dr. David Shear. He's at the Corner Health Center, uh, and he, has, uh, uh, he, he got a grant for an initiative, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, and he has a one-stop shop for addressing patients' medical and social needs. So he looks at some of these uh, social issues, and he has a team of social workers, peer educators, psychiatrists, nutritionists, as well as family doctors, nurse practitioners, certified midwives, and, and pediatricians. He has a one-stop shop. He has a, a, um, a medical home idea. Anybody here involved in the medical home movement? No? None. Okay. I guess that hasn't come to Washington yet. <laughs> All right. He says, there's no question in my mind that if we didn't address psychosocial needs, we would put on a lot of bandages and give immunizations, but we wouldn't change the trajectory of our patients' lives from a health and well-being perspective. We wouldn't be very effective. Because what he's trying to do and what... I am suggesting that we all should do is we should be interested in not just what we see on the surface, but trying to get to the root causes. What is it that's informing this behavior? Why are you doing what you're doing? Now, we can only go so far. And the reason for that is because we can say the issue is sin, right? I mean, we know that sin 
is, is here. Okay? But let's be, let's be careful when we go that route because Adam and Eve, they didn't sin before they sinned. <laughs> but you might say, but sin was in the world. And that's true. But Lucifer, he had his problem in a sinless world. Right? So from the biblical standpoint, it's called the mystery of iniquity. It's a mystery. I can't, I can't get to that. But for human beings on this side, we can get to some of these issues, and the research is showing that when you address some of this, you actually can make a big impact in that person's life. And there's this lady who wrote this stuff and said, you know, we should educate, educate, educate. You've heard that stuff, huh? Right? Well, how would you know what to educate if you don't know what is going on with the individual? And then she says that there's one method alone that will bring success in reaching the people. You remember that one? Ministry of Healing. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He mingled with them. Now, mingling is not just talking with them, right? Uh, right now, I'm talking with you, but we're not mingling yet, okay? Uh, where you're sitting, you're with each other, but you're not mingling, right? Jesus mingled with men as one who desired their good. And not, he didn't pretend to desire their good. It's because he desired their good, he mingled with them. Am I making sense? Right? And in that context, he was able to sympathize with them and he was able to meet the needs that they had. Now, we can't meet all the needs that everybody has. But I want to suggest that we have opportunities to meet the needs, and we have opportunities not just because we are practitioners, but because we belong to a faith community. We have resources, spiritual resources, and we have physical resources called the church. And over the course of the weekend, we'll be talking about, about that, how, how, we can, how we can do this. I don't know this doctor. I don't know if he's a Christian. I, I have no idea what he's, what he's into. But he's saying he wouldn't be very effective if he didn't take care of some of those issues. So when I look at uh, kind of another way of dealing with lifestyle and making recommendations to people and to patients. I realize that where we live, where we learn, where we work, where we play, they have more to do with our health than going to the doctor. What's going on there? That's where, th that's where the action is in their life. And this is where the church is supposed to reside. And if we belong to a faith community, that's where in our other life, okay, our real life, that's where we're supposed to reside too. So, what is it that we recommend? Access to fresh fruits and vegetables, right? So what if the person doesn't have access to it? We have to look for a solution. It's not enough to say you need to eat more, more fruits and vegetables. 
telling them that if they don't have access and they, they, they have no worth. When we were in Mexico, we went into this community. They, they ate very little fruits and vegetables. What they had were tortillas, they had uh, cheese, and they had chicken, and once in a while they'd have beef, carne asada. Vegetables, that was uh, picadillo, you know, a little bit of tomatoes, some onions, that, that, that's vegetables for them. So, uh, in this particular town, now that's not how all of Mexico is, but that's how this town was. So we said, how about having a garden? Right? And uh, after people hemmed and hawed, there's this one woman who had some property. She said, sure, we can do the garden at my place. So the women in the town, right, there were about 15 uh, women that got together. And so they were shown how to plant vegetables. And they really, really enjoyed this. And the vegetables grew, and it produced an abundant harvest, okay? And then it happened. The stuff was remaining on the plants and on the trees. Why? They didn't know how to prepare them. They thought it looked good, but what do you do with it? So we had to teach them how to cook it, how to cook these things, how to prepare them, how to eat some raw, etc., right? And then it happened. The woman whose land was being used, she said, this is my land, I want it all. <laughs> she took it over. <laughs> so we had to start over again. Uh, but it, it worked out. The other women, they said, well, that's how she is. So uh, we got another piece of land. Actually, the mayor gave a plot of land and everybody had a little parcel, but now they were experienced at things. And I can tell you, uh, when last I heard, which was a few years ago, things were flourishing, okay? The community began with community gardens, right? In another community, we were asking the kids about, about eating vegetables. Well, they had only heard about broccoli. They'd never seen a broccoli. So you ask, do you like broccoli? They can't tell you. They've never tasted it. Carrots. The only carrots that they've seen were carrots that came uh, canned with chili peppers. And so all they saw was a little piece of a carrot. They had never actually held a whole carrot. But I shouldn't be surprised that that in Mexico, uh, when we were in, in Pennsylvania, some of the kids there had never been on a farm. They didn't know where milk came from. And when they heard that it comes from the udder of a cow, they were saying, ugh. <laughs> uh, rightly so. <laughs> but, and they didn't know about, about plants, and, and they didn't know. They didn't know. They were living in the city, and they didn't have access. Are you following what I'm trying to say? We, we, we may believe that everybody understands things the way we do, but they may not. So, access to fresh fruits, and access to green spaces, freedom to walk and play during the day. There are some places where people have to be indoors and locked up because of crime and whatnot on the streets. Income levels, uh, low income, three times the mortality 
before age 65 from those who are not low income. Education levels, two and a half times mortality before age 65 uh, than those who have higher education. In some states, uh, county of residence and zip code produce a 13-year difference in longevity if you have this zip code versus that. And this research was first done in Washington state. Okay. Uh, racial inequities and the master status effect. The master status effect just means in any kind of community, there is some group that is considered, that's the top group, and then everybody else, you know, kind of fall into some uh, hierarchical uh, decline. And this residence, school, hi, I have a, another slide that shows this. Where you reside actually determines the school district, right? And the school district may have good schools or bad schools, right? Now, the government may not tell you good schools and bad schools, but we all know there are good schools and there are bad schools. So where you reside determines the school, and the school determines whether or not you're going to have higher education or not. And that higher education is going to determine what kind of job you get, and that job that you get or don't get will determine how much you get paid. And that pay will determine where you live, because if you don't have enough money, you can't live in one of those neighborhoods that will have... You get the idea? You know what this is called? A vicious cycle. Now, our job, if you will accept it, you know, Mission Impossible, right? is to be able to help people to get out of that cycle. And part of that getting out of that cycle is not just social, and it's not just physical, it actually happens to be spiritual. To have another view, another way of looking at things. And as doctors, we have a unique opportunity and we have a responsibility for every patient that comes into our office and into our sphere of influence. Here's an inconvenient truth. Dr. Joel McCullough said, life isn't just, this is from the state of, uh, of, uh, of Washington in Spokane County. Life isn't just better at the top, it's longer and healthier at the top. Their health inequities and inequities. <laughs> So what's the top? Everybody wants to be at the top. Well, here are some tips for staying healthier and having a fuller lifestyle approach, okay? In your socioeconomic, racial, environmental context, here it is, don't smoke. If you do, stop. If you don't, don't start. How about that? Does that sound reasonable? Okay, how about this one? Eat a balanced diet, whole foods, fruits, vegetables. As, as one author says, uh, eat Wholesome food, not too much, mainly plants, <laughs> okay? All right, keep physically active. If you drink, stop. If you don't drink, don't start. Avoid excessive sun and protect your children. Practice safe sex, mutually monogamous sex, natural marital sex, okay, that's the kind. Participate in appropriate health screening and follow up, right? Just getting a screen is not enough. You have to follow up. Drive defensively. Don't drink and drive, and don't drive with people who drink. Okay? Manage your stress. Practice physical, mental, and dental hygiene. Manage, uh, 
reciprocally supportive social ties, maintain reciprocally supportive social ties. And uh, this one is go to church and go regularly. You have a, a trusting relationship with God and love people. Okay? These are this advice to people. How does that sound? Does that sound like good Seventh-day Adventist advice? Yes. But now let me make a little twist and show you what we have to do now that we have learned about the expanded social determinants. Recommend, don't be poor. If you can, stop. Stop being poor. If you can't, try not to be poor for too long. Because the longer you're poor, the worse off you're going to be. Next one, don't have poor parents. If you have poor parents, you're more likely to be poor, you're more likely to be sick, you're more likely to have all kinds of problems, you're more likely to live in a place that you wouldn't want to live. Don't live in poor or industrialized neighborhoods. Own a car, but use it only on weekends and walk to work if you can. So your neighborhood can't be crime-laden, right? Because if, if it is, then you can't walk to work. And if you leave the car, it's going to get stolen. <laughs> okay? So practice not losing your job. And don't become unemployed. And don't tell how much you made in the last job. Do you know why? When you tell how much you made in the last job, that determines how much they're going to pay you in this job. Because people don't pay you based on what the job is worth. They pay you based on giving you a little bit more than the last job. But if the last job you were being underpaid, guess what you're going to be paid in this one? Underpaid as well. It's, it's a cyclic thing. Okay, don't be illiterate. <laughs> uh, this is, of course, a little tongue-in-cheek, but this is, this is really the issue. Don't be illiterate. Avoid it like the plague. Avoid social isolation, but choose educated friends. Don't accumulate ace points. <laughs> choose your parents wisely. Try not to be part of a socially marginalized group and be born in a happiness index country, all right? Well, as I said, it's tongue-in-cheek, but actually all of these things have statistical significance. And as, as physicians in our practice, we should be looking out for these things. But of course, it's ridiculous to tell somebody, don't be poor. Choose your parents. Some of that is really outside of their immediate control. But I remember, some years ago, a very interesting statistic looking at Seventh-day Adventists. Are you aware that Seventh-day Adventists, uh, as a group, is poorer than the Mormons and the, the, the other religious groups? Are you aware of this? Poorer than the Baptists, etc. Oh, yeah, oh, no, Adventists are considered poor people. But we believe that part of this was because the survey was not taken across the board because uh, many of the professional Seventh-day Adventists did not turn in their surveys. Okay? So we end up being poorer. But there's something very interesting that happens. When a family becomes Seventh-day Adventist, within one generation, the educational level of that family goes from pre-high school to college and graduate school. One generation. Right? One generation. Educate, educate, educate. So here's what our church 
through our practice, can be able to do. This is that same graph, and we're looking at uh, individual lifestyle factors and social and community networks, etc. First of all, we can help patients, even in our offices, to develop a spiritual dimension, a biblical worldview, because of how we talk to them, the literature we have, the, the music that we play, all of these things in our practice, if we have control over those things. Okay? Next, community. In our own practices, we can, have, we can form a community, first of all, with our staff. And then, uh, is there anyone here who has uh, group visits? Oh, you have to have a workshop on group visits. It's the way to have a church in your office. Okay? Because the patients will come to a group visit, and then they will learn to work with each other, and pretty soon, Bible studies and all of those kinds of things can happen right there in your office. You know about group visits, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. So you can develop a community right there in your office. What else? Lifestyle. We've talked about the expanded things we need to find out about. And then the things that we can uh, intervene with, we do. Age. You know, we can help people to grow younger. You know about the health age and real age approaches? You know about the Alameda uh, study looking at different lifestyle factors? And if you practice, the more of these you, you, you practice, the lower your physiologic age is. Okay? So I tell people, I can help you to grow younger. And they say, oh, come on, doc. Yeah, I can help you grow younger. We go through the stuff and we say, you have to do this if you do these things, right? Is it possible for you to do them? Which ones can you do? Because if you don't ask that question, it's all yes, 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 yes. But in reality, it's going to be no, no, no. Okay, education. We can help people with that. Okay? And that's the interface now with the church. We can have all kinds of seminars and things like that in the church. We can have uh, homework helping for the kids in the neighborhood, but we have a little issue. I don't know if, if this is the same thing here, but um, many of our churches are Sabbath-only churches. Do you have that here too? Everybody lives far away from the church. You come in on Sabbath, you go to church, you have potluck or whatever it is, and you go back home and the church, nobody lives around the church. Is, is that how it is here too? I, I don't know, but anyway. But that's how it is in many parts of the country. Actually, and around the world, I, I'm seeing the same thing. So that, that becomes an issue. And then agriculture and food production. Guess what? We can teach this. Amen. Right? Even with our own members, and then we spread it to the other people in the neighborhood. No problem. No problem. Okay. Unemployment. We can get people to work. If you have these things working together, unemployment becomes less of an issue. Okay? Less of an issue. Does our electronic health record capture these things? Well, according to the Institute of Medicine, they're trying to be able to incorporate this, and I just have a few more slides to show. Although social and behavioral factors influence the health and mortality, they're often ignored in clinical practice, so a new set of standard measures for social and behavioral determinants of health delineated by the Institute of Medicine Committee should catalyze action in this front. Now, who should be leading this charge? 
I, I believe that Seventh-day Adventists should be leading this charge, but uh, that's not necessarily uh, the case. Here are some of the things that they, they propose from the Institute of Medicine. We should ask about your race. We should ask about your uh, ethnic origin. Why? Because these things are actually influences of what the person will have access to and what they can and what they can't do and how they'll be seen in, in society and what, etc. Education, highest level of school, financial resources, stress, depression, physical activity, uh, tobacco use, alcohol use, we, we, we ask that for sure. Social connection or isolation, we usually don't ask that. We don't ask how many friends you have, do you have a social network, da, da, da. we don't ask those kinds of questions. Intimate partner violence. Uh, Residential address, where is your current address? I have some slides looking at different neighborhoods. Uh, there's a place called, I don't know Spokane, so where's Riverside? There's a downtown Riverside. They seem to have the worst health indicators from every, just by looking at the data. Is it a bad place, this Riverside? Lower income, okay. Uh, anyway. So you, you can find where the census tract is. If you have a patient, you know where the person lives. Uh, you, can, you can actually already begin to understand some of what uh, that context might be, and you might understand better what their lifestyle is as you're going to uh, try to help them as an individual. Uh, researchers have shown that there are three different levels of, of social determinants that we can get into the health sector. That means working with the hospitals, working with the health department, working with the insurance companies and so on, so that you can get this. Use medical assistance to refer food insecure patients to food benefits program. Provide legal services through medical legal partnerships. These are things that you may have uh, access to and influence over that will benefit your patients. Okay? Uh, okay. Uh, I, I recommend this article for anyone. Uh, Steve Schroeder uh, wrote this, We Can Do Better, Improving the Health of American People. Since all the actionable determinants of health, personal behavior, social factors, healthcare and environment, disproportionately affect the poor, strategies to improve national health rankings must focus on this population. This is what he said. This is uh, Dr. Shears looking at his, uh, at his people again in the one-stop one shop. This is uh, from, uh, uh, from the north of here, um, in Canada. They were looking at what's going on in their community, and these are some of the issues that they have found as uh, social issues affecting the health uh, of their population. So what can we do? First of all, we can be aware and screen for social determinants of health and barriers to health in our offices, in our practice. It's legal, it's legitimate, and uh, there are there are questionnaires, a few questions, five, 10, 11 questions, right? That will give you part of that profile. And uh, the one that the Institute of Medicine had that I just showed you is a good place to start. Train or send your staff for training. In other words, the staff uh, is also part of this. They also should be sensitive uh, to this. Incorporate wellness and preventive services into your practice. Consider a home visit uh, to one of your geriatric patients uh, uh, periodically. Go and see how they live. You know, you send them home with a prescription or with good advice, and you have no idea how they're going to do this when they get home. So go by and see sometime. 
Explore the full medical ministry angle and engage your patients and engage your community. Engage your church people in meaningful health ministry with your patient's permission. Uh, there are some people, all they need is somebody to call them and see how they're doing. And there are people in the church who say, I'm looking for missionary and ministry opportunities. You link one with the other. Somebody calls. How are you doing? Next thing you know, they develop a friendship. Next thing you know, they have dinner together. Next thing you know, they're coming to church. Now, here's what Dr. Gordon Schiff said. He's a doctor at Brigham and Women's in Boston. For many of us, particularly primary care physicians, more than anything, financial incentives, etc., our most fulfilling rewards and professional satisfactions come from having meaningful relationships with our patients, as well as our ability to broadly ameliorate their problems and suffering. This is what this Harvard guy says. And I had to ask the question, and I'm asking it to you. Is that really what satisfies you in your practice? I can tell you, I know some doctors, this is the furthest thing from the truth. And they're Seventh-day Adventists. But here's this guy saying, here at Harvard, here at the Brigham, this is, this is it. And we know that Christ's method alone. So part of my recommendation, and uh, we're going to talk about this over the course of the weekend, is what I call www.sdadoc.org. It doesn't exist, okay? It doesn't exist. But you know, when somebody is looking for a doctor, and they say, I want a doctor who is not going to treat me as a piece of meat, but somebody who's going to treat me as a person. Somebody who really cares about me and what I'm going through. Somebody who's willing to take a little extra time. Somebody who's willing to see me within the context of an add-on today. Somebody who's compassionate and kind. And who will say hi to the kids who come to the office? Who are they looking for? I think they should be able to go on a website called www.sdadoc.org and find you or find me. What do you think? Now, what are the characteristics of people who sign up to be part of this network? Competency, I tell you, there is no excuse for being incompetent, right? Highly competent individuals. So competency, excellent. Conviviality, meaning they can mix and mingle with people, outstanding. How about this one? Conscientiousness, over the top. How about character? Christ-like integrity and a Christ-like Christian worldview. How do you like that? Huh? And of course, compassion, out of this world, actually described as being heavenly. 
Would you want to be a doctor like that? Would you want to be able to go to a doctor like that? This is what Seventh-day Adventist doctors were supposed to be like. Following the pattern of the great physician. The principles, Matthew 7. Inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren. Also, Matthew 7. Let your light so shine, you know it, before men, that they might see what? Your good works and pay you a lot of money. Is that what it says? No, and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Matthew 25. Sheep and goat, right? Which, which side do you want to be on? Isaiah 58. Being a good Samaritan. Consider Joseph, through whom all the world was blessed. You know, Potiphar's house was blessed not because of Potiphar. It wasn't even because of Joseph's ability. The Bible says it's because of who Joseph was. That everything he touched was successful. Is Spokane successful because you are here? I'm assuming you're all from Spokane. Of course, that may not be true. But is your town, is your neighborhood better because you are there? I hope over this weekend you have a chance to examine that question. And we remember that Christ's method alone is what will bring true success. For the patient who says, but doctor, I have all these negatives, all these social things, all my baggage, all these ACE scores. How am I ever going to get out of this broken cycle? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. God doesn't have to take that history. He knows it. He knows our frame. He knows we're dust. And he is able to do for us far beyond what we can even ask or think. But this advice is for the physician too. How can you do this? How can you transform your practice? How can you be able to take care of people with all these needs? Oh, doctor, you, you must be crazy. How, I, I can hardly keep up with what I already have. Far more to get the social history and find out about what I can't do all that. Advice, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He shall direct your path. Thank you very much. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.